Hello again, everyone. Welcome again to another round of Deep Dives with Father Sean, the Super Catholic Catechesis Podcast. This is inspired by the Catechism's reminder that times of renewal in the Church are also intense moments of catechesis. And this is about 3,875 times easier than doing something in person. Plus, my audience is bigger. I know it's hard to get to different things at the Church. That's kind of life. And it's hard for me to carve out some time in the evenings. I'm kind of spread over three parishes, and I still love to teach, and boom, so I teach. So this is great. Um, thank you all for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading or or streaming or whatever you might need to do. Um, it's kind of amazing. I think recently, last number of months, I've been getting over 100 downloads every, every week, uh, and I am guessing... I don't know, but I think most of the people who stream as opposed to download, that's kind of crazy. I have no idea. I don't, it's not to say I don't have any idea who listens. I do have some ideas, but there are definitely people listening who I don't know. And hello to you. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to dive right on in here. We're doing this Emmaus teaching, and today we're talking about the kingship. We have been addressing Jesus as priest, prophet, and king. We've been addressing ourselves in his life, in his in his nature, in his person, and what our role is and how we live that and what it means in liturgy. I mean, that's kind of the whole thing here. So we've been doing this Emmaus teaching here, the road to Emmaus. You know, they, they had the scripture of the Old Testament opened up to them. It was fulfilled in the New Testament right there with Jesus. There was the liturgical moment of the breaking of the bread in which he was revealed, and then their lives were changed. So that's our... That's our pattern here. Old Testament roots, New Testament fulfillment, the prayer of the liturgy, and what it means for us, what it means for us. And as we talk about kingship, we're going to hit on all that good stuff, all that good stuff. So let's just dive right on in with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Praise to you, eternal God, living and true. We honor and bless you, for you have been most merciful in giving us leaders. You've been most just in, in promising uh, reward to good leaders and punishment to bad leaders. We ask that we may all be conformed to the leadership, the kingship of Jesus Christ, that we may be responsible in his image and likeness. And we may also be protectors of the sacred church, just as King David was the protector of Israel and Jesus the protector of his spouse. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Alleluia. 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 So, you know, in a nutshell, here's kind of the story. This is going to be the Old Testament part. And this is kind of a key thing here. So we don't, you know, so we, we know the family history of Jesus, where this idea of kingship comes from. You know, it doesn't come out of nowhere. We could get back into Genesis and have some talk about kings. You know, Melchizedek was the king of Selah, which became Jerusalem. And we're going to jump over them. So the people of Israel, they were formed as the first, the family of Abraham. And then in Egypt, and especially as they exited Egypt, they were formed into a, a more specific people, the people of God, the people of Israel. And then when they finally got out of the desert and into the promised land, they were ruled by, do you remember who? By judges, by judges. This is kind of just what we call these people. They, they certainly sat in the throne of judgment, but they were more of these, 
unique, charismatic, inspired leaders who guided the people of God. Um, they weren't kings. They weren't kings. But they were kind of more like prophets. It's more like a prophet-led kingdom. They were not all of them good. Not all of them were so great. But by and large, that worked pretty well for the people of God. Jesus's or God's people. And then we have this crazy story. The crazy, crazy story. You know, there's the envy that they had of the world. And I'm going to read this, pretty much this whole chapter here, because it's kind of crazy what happened. You know, it's a story that's kind of sad. It's kind of a sad story here. and But it bears to tell it in its fullness, because here's the people, they're comparing themselves with the other people of the time, and they get jealous. They want what they have. They know there's going to be consequences. It's going to cause hurt and pain. That's what God tells them. But God is merciful and just. And he gives them what they want mercifully. And that's also a just thing too because they're going to pay for it. <laughs> so this is from the first book of Samuel, chapter 8. In his old age, Samuel appointed his sons judges over Israel. do 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 do, do. They, Therefore, all the heir... All the elders of Israel assembled and went to Samuel. And they said to him, Now that you are old and your sons do not follow your example, appoint a king over us like all the nations to rule us. Samuel was displeased when they said, Give us a king to rule us. But he prayed to the Lord. The Lord said, Listen to whatever the people say. You are not the one they are rejecting. They are rejecting me as their king. So pause. You know, God had been their king. God, The king had been sending them his emissaries, the judges. But God had been their king. And they're kind of like saying, mm, yeah, thanks God for being our king. We prefer a human being to be our king. Because having a God as a king is a little bit tricky. We don't like that so much. He might be good and almighty, but we'd rather be like someone else. So. He continues, now listen to them, but at the same time, give them a solemn warning and inform them of the rights of the king who will rule them. Samuel delivered the message of the Lord in full to those who were asking him for a king. He told them, this is crazy, I love this, the governance of the king who will rule you will be as follows. He will take your sons and assign them to his chariots and horses, and they will run before his chariot. He will appoint them he will appoint from among them his commanders of thousands and of hundreds. He will make them do his plowing and harvesting and produce his weapons of war and chariotry. He will use your daughters as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take your best fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to his servants. He will tithe your crops and grape harvests to give to his officials and his servants. He will take your male and female slaves as well as your best oxen and donkeys, and use them to do his work. You will also tithe your flocks. As for you, you will become his slaves. On that day you will cry out because of the king whom you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. Key words here, he will take, he will use, he will tithe from you. They will, they're already owing a tenth to God. And God is saying, by the way, the king's going to want another tenth. He's going to tax you, you fools. You're going to be his slaves. That's a big word here at the end. It's kind of like the conclusion. And then the people respond. The people, however, refused to listen to Samuel's warning and said, no, 
There must be a king over us. We too must be like all the nations with a king to rule us, lead us in warfare, and fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the concerns of the people and then repeated them to the Lord. The Lord said, listen to them. Appoint a king to rule over them. Then Samuel said to the people of Israel, return each one of you to your own city. He answered the prayer. He gave them Saul. Saul was a was a, a mess. You know, for a while it was okay, but he was it panned out really bad. We know how the story went. There's David. Now, oops, I lost my page. I should have kept that page because we're kind of sticking in Samuel there. Now, David comes along, and he's kind of different. He's different. So one, we're going to talk about some of the ways that David is different. He's special. And it's very key that David is, he's not the first king because of Saul, but he is a new branch. He comes not from Saul, but from Jesse. Jesse is his dad. The word David, or the name David, comes from beloved. Comes from beloved. And that is not an accident. That's not an accident. And then he's also chosen in his youth. You know, they had the brothers there, and and they were, Samuel was looking for them to find the new king, and yeah, they weren't, there was no David. He was the youngest. He was in the, the shepherd. He was a shepherd. So, um, that's kind of what happens here. Now, they're going to choose someone. Actually, this is, he ch is chosen in that scene, but there's another scene when Saul is repro reproved by Samuel. Samuel replied to Saul, 1 Samuel 13, verse 13 and 14. Samuel replied to Saul, You have acted foolishly. Had you kept the command the Lord your God gave you, the Lord would now establish your kingship in Israel forever. But now your kingship shall not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart to appoint as ruler over his people, because you did not observe what the Lord commanded you. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Later on, we get to see who this is. So we jump forward just a couple chapters to chapter 16, uh, verse 13. Then Samuel, with the horn of oil in hand, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Think about this. These older brothers are looking at their younger brother, who was deemed not even fit to be summoned. Uh, he kind of gets uh, lifted up among them. Samuel anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. That's a good deal. So let's look at this. His name means beloved. Think about Jesus. Behold, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. A man after his own heart. Well, who in the world had the heart of God than Jesus? He was God, totally united with God. Heart speaks to heart eternally there. And so David is like Jesus in that way. Or Jesus fulfills this, this David who was after his own heart. And then Jesus received that Holy Spirit again at the baptism there. Kind of, this is really huge. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. That's super dang cool. That's super dang cool. Now, it's no accident that, that David was such a primary figure in the coming of Jesus. Even at that time, they knew that David was going to be something special, maybe not in his day, but later on. Uh, David was special in his time. He had his sin, didn't he? But, but he had his retribution. He had his moment of mercy and justice. 
and God made a big old promise to him. So we get this from now 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in this, this is a significant, significant prophecy. And this is in response to David saying, I'm going to build an awesome, sweet, awesome house for, for, for God. And Nathan says, yeah, yeah, do whatever's in your heart. And then verse 4, it continues. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell, the ser- tell David, my servant, thus says the Lord, it is you who would build me a house to dwell in? I've never dwelt in a house, but I've been going about in a tent or a tabernacle as long as I've wandered about among the Israelites. Did I ever say a word to any of the judges? Did I ever complain? Now tell this to David. I was with you whenever you had your enemies. I helped you cut them down, and so on, and so on, and so on. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord, this is big, that the Lord will make a house for you. The word house can mean like a family house. Think of like the house of, uh, you know, the, the kings of England, you know, sometimes or house of Charlemagne, house of, it's kind of a, a family descendancy. So he's going to have his ancestry be established for a long dang time. We're going to hear how long. Moreover, the Lord also declares, so it's a double meaning when he says, you want to build me a house? Well, I'm going to build you a house. More of the Lord also declares to you, the Lord will make a house for you. When your days have been completed and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise, raise up your offspring after you sprung from your loins, and I will establish his kingdom. He it is who shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. That's a really big word. Skip forward to verse 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom are firm forever ever before me your throne shall be firmly established established forever big deal here big deal here folks this is a big thing um god is saying oh yeah you're gonna you're gonna be really established you're gonna have an awesome family and then at some point it's gonna be a really awesome house and the throne there is gonna be forever super super big deal um, so how is that fulfilled in the New Testament? Matthew really hits on this really strong. And his geolo- genealogy, he really highlights his, his Jewish heritage, but it's specifically through the line of the father, that his father, Jesus' father, earthly father, not, not biological father, uh, Joseph, is coming from the line of David. Jesus is to inherit his throne by rights. That's what Matthew's highlighting here. Jesus is the son of David. We hear that nine times in Matthew and very rarely in the other gospels. A little bit, a little bit, but not much, not nine times. Paul will even refer to Jesus as the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse, thinking of the father of David who is Jesse. And so the root of David will also be the root of Jesse. Think about where Jesus was born, in Bethlehem, which is the city of who? That's right, the city of David. And then the Magi present to Jesus, frankincense, myrrh, but what was the other one? Gold. Gold is to represent Jesus as king. Frankincense and myrrh are representing 
different forms of incense or, or anointing for his death and for his for his priesthood. So it's important to recognize David and the promise, really a covenant. When God makes a promise, he makes a covenant. He is establishing a particular family relationship with David, and he ain't going to go back on it, that there will come a son from David who will sit upon a throne that will last forever. And what do we hear? You know, I'm kind of probably jumping ahead of myself a little bit. But, you know, later on in Hebrews, we hear about Jesus as the king who has a throne forever. The Lamb of God in the book of Revelation is always, maybe not always, but at least three times seen sitting on a throne. This is a big deal. He has a throne. He has a throne. The Lamb of God has a throne. Jesus has a throne. We're going to hit on that a little bit more here in a moment here, but but just kind of allude to it briefly. We hear other places that there's a prophecy of an everlasting throne, verse, or excuse me, Psalm chapter 45, Daniel 4, Isaiah 9, verse 7, etc., etc., but really, what I want to highlight here as a fulfillment of sitting on this throne is kind of ironic. It's at the moment of his crucifixion. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, you say that I am. In another place, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my attendants would come down and fight for me kind of a big deal. He admits it. It's not of this world, but he admits it. He is mocked as a king. They give him a, a staff in his hand, put a crown upon his head, though made, made out of thorns. What is the sign they put above him? INRI is what we have over our crucifixes, but that's just an abbreviation of what was actually written there in Latin and in Hebrew and an Aramaic. No, well, I might be mistaken on that, but I believe those are the three three languages. Jesus, the Nazarene, King of the Jews. In different ways, it is portrayed that Jesus' throne, which will last forever, is the cross, which is mysteriously transformed in the book of Revelation. The lamb who is slain is now sitting on a throne. So we still have this identity of Jesus on a throne, but now it's reversed. Um, the lamb is suffering just as Jesus suffered on his cross, his throne. It's incredible. There is also, I'm not going to get into these details too much, but there are some prophetic mentions that he will be the king over all nations. He will rule over all nations, and we know that Jesus did that. Uh, Jesus claims it. Well, let's go through a little bit of this here. So let's talk about, well, this is, now I want to, we don't have Jesus actually saying that he's the king here. This is the imagery that's around it. Um, and who's in charge of the imagery? God is 100%. The imagery is not accidental. It is truly there with a real purpose. And at the same hand, Jesus is going to claim his own kingship. And in some sense, he does it in a veiled way. But in another sense, it's, it's clear for all who, who put their, their attention to it. So Matthew 21, Matthew 21, he 
makes his glorious triumphant enter, entry into Jerusalem. When they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage in the Mount of Olives, Jesus... So think about the Mount of Olives, all right? Olives make oil. Oil is used for anointing. Who is anointed? Uh, it's either a priest or a king. So it's no, no accident that this is kind of what's going on there. An illusion to have in the background of the mind at the entrance of the story, the beginning of the story. Jesus says to the disciples, go into the village, get a colt, etc. It's kind of a prophetic thing. And then this happened so that he, what had been spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. This is what we hear in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Say to daughter Zion, Behold, your king comes to you, meek and riding on an ass, and a, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the king is going to come, says the prophet Zechariah, but the way that he's going to come, not, as, not on a, a glorious royal charger made for the king of kings, but on a humble ass, a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus ordered them. They brought the ass and the colt and laid their cloaks over them, and he sat upon them, and he entered into town. The very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and strewed them on the road. This is just what happened in Second Kings chapter 9. When there was a new king, what did they do? Well, they put the cloaks on the road before the king pretty awesome and their acclamation is hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest that's taken out of the psalms psalm 118 to kind of welcome a new king to recognize his presence so this is all super direct blatant kingly imagery here and this is you know on the other hand it looks like jesus being the he is being a victim but he's also in charge of his victimhood as a priest. He's not committing suicide, but but it is a, a providential moment that he is the providence behind. But in his entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus is taking the matter into his own hands to declare that he is the king of the people of Israel. We know his kingdom is even bigger. So, that's awesome. Let's jump forward a little bit. We're going to learn a little bit more of the nature of this king. Um, after he's in Jerusalem, a lot of his teaching is the kingdom of God is like this. The Son of God, when he comes, it will be like this. La da 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 da. This over example, these are kind of some big, big parables here. Uh, the parable of the ten virgins. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. The next parable. It will be as when a man was going on a journey, etc., etc., etc. Uh, I think it's St. John Chrysostom notes that, okay, Jesus is telling these parables, it's like, it's as if, la, 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 la. And then he gets to the point where he says, this is it. No longer as if or like, this is it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be assembled before him. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
So he is always, he generally refers, not generally, he frequently refers to himself as son of man. Here I am, the son of man, and this is what I'm saying. When the son of man, I return again in glory on a throne, it's going to be a judgment. I will be here. I will be the king, and I will call those faithful ones to be beside me. Pretty amazing. And he calls to those who are inheriting the kingdom. Um, as his sons, as his sons, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So these are, sons are always like the father. If you're inheriting, you're a son. If you're inheriting, you're a son. The son's like a father, and therefore the kingship of the king is going to be shared by his sons, those who he's calling to himself. So as he's describing these sons who are kingdom ready, he's describing them as people who are merciful. You remember how this goes. Um, I was a stranger, you welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. Ill, you cared for me, etc. The nature of a king is to care for the little ones. We have awesome, awesome stories of this from the saints. Look it up, saintly kings, and you're going to be really, really impressed. Saint Stanislaus, uh, Saint Louis of France. You know, there's other examples. So, pretty cool. So, Jesus is king. He's come back as judge, and it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And a key way of living that is to care for the little ones, protect the little ones. Now let's talk about the nature of the kingship. What is this kingship? Who is he the Lord over? Well, like I mentioned earlier, he says, my kingship is not of this world. So we know that his kingship is firstly spiritual. He has conquered everything through his death and resurrection he owns the world it is conquered by him he has full dominion over it and yet there are people and beings who refuse that dominion he has the right to come at his leisure to claim that dominion over them to punish those who have rebelled and to to call to himself those who have been faithful but this is first and foremost the spiritual reality his kingship is not of this world it's of the next world he is establishing the kingdom of god not the kingdom of man therefore we have not established you know the uh, the country of king jesus you know that doesn't exist his kingship is not of this world his dominion is primarily spiritual and yet at the same hand well first off before i get there so we should say that through this spiritual claim over everything, he has a spiritual claim on every individual. And he has the right to intervene in the affairs of individuals. Okay, it's not too complicated. For example, he has the right to call me to be a priest. He has the right to call you to be a firefighter. He has the right to call you to be a missionary. He has the right to call you to help with a project at your church he has the right to call you to to start up a bible study i don't know whatever it is you know he has the right to do this he has the right to call you to be a monastery and do nothing there except for pray that's his prerogative he's the king of kings the lord of lords he knows us perfectly he rules in a kingdom based on love and you know you don't need to worry if you're called to something that you're hard to it's hard for you to understand it's going to be okay so he has a spiritual claim on the individual However, we must also recognize 
that his kingship is over the entire universe. He is the king of the universe. And this is meant to be something very literal. He is not establishing a world order, a single country. No. But he is saying that he is above those countries. And his kingdom is to include all these countries and to include all of those leaders. He is not working for for the particular good of any country. I mean, he desires the good of all countries, if you will. But he is calling all those countries to serve truth and goodness. He's not calling the political order to to be forfeited over to the spiritual order, no. But he is calling the political order, the worldly order, the physical order, to to be obedient to him in the values that he has established eternally in truth. Um, mercy, justice, equality, recognition of dignity, etc., etc., and everything that flows from there. Subsidiarity, uh, solidarity, all these nice words. So, <laughs> not words. They're more than words. They're the values behind the words. They're the reality of it. And because he's the king of the universe, and he has domain over every individual, he has the domain over all the individuals in any country, and they must rule that country in accordance with those dictates that God has established for humanity. Um, to establish the kingdom of God, he has called forth the church, not the political unit. But the political unit must respect it, honor it, and give it space and allow for it to flourish. It is That is the relationship of, of the matter. He also has the right to do whatever he wants. He is the king of life and death. He's the Lord of all. It's kind of like saying um, you have someone you give $20 to every day. Why? Why not? You know, Today you gave $20 to Steve. Tomorrow you're going to give $20 to Steve. The next day you're going to give $20 to Steve. And let's say and then the following day you're like, nope, I ain't giving you more money, Steve. I'm sorry. I didn't have to give it to you from the beginning. I just wanted to. Let's say that God was that reality. He, he's like that. And he says, hey, I don't have to give you existence, being, life. But I do so today. And I did so yesterday. And I do so tomorrow. But just because I keep on giving you this gift doesn't put me into an obligation to continue to give you this gift. I am the Lord of all. This gift is freely given, and I can stop giving it whenever to give you a different gift, to give you a higher gift, or whatever gift I want to give you. It's my, my gift, and I can stop giving if I want to, or I can change that for a different gift. So this is just one example that I give to highlight that Jesus, as king over the all, over everything, he has the right to, to do everything. If, it, for example, it's your time to leave this world and he stops giving you the gift of earthly life, well, prepare yourself before it happens. <laughs> and please, God, he will give you the eternal life. He's given you this promise should we follow uh, his covenant and live in accordance with that. Okay, what is the church's role in this? What is the church's role in this? Well, I think the church, as the sp spouse, the bride of Christ, is kind of like the queen. The queen. The church is to be the advocate of this dominion of Christ, to build the kingdom of God, as I mentioned. Um, all, all in the Holy Spirit. You know, I have some friends from seminary, they 
really hated this song. Let us build the kingdom of God. La, da, 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 da. And they said, ha, 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 who's building the kingdom of God here? You know, it's God who builds his kingdom. And I never quite got it because it's like, I thought we were baptized and given spiritual gifts to help in the building up of the body of Christ or the kingdom of God or the church, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think we do have a role to play. And if the song is say, let us build the kingdom of God without God's help, let da, 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 you know, that's one thing. But if it's just, hey, let's build the kingdom of God. Let's work on it. Let's, let's get in it. Let's do what is our due and our responsibility and call it done. You know, that's, that's to our benefit. That's the benefit of all. So I had never quite understood that. I think the church needs to be the advocate in building up the kingdom of God and to labor in that. So there's a, the feast of Jesus Christ, king of the universe. This was uh, given to us by Pius XI. He noted that all evils in the world were because men kicked out Jesus and his law and his authority and his power. They just didn't want to be under his yoke. They didn't want to be under his domain, and so they they sloughed it off. You can call it atheism, secularism, materialism, individualism, blah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. But this is what happens. They threw off the yoke of Christ. They said, I will not serve. <laughs> That's a bad thing to say. Don't say that. So Pius established the feast day of of Jesus Christ, King of the universe, to remind the world that Jesus indeed has all authority and all power. And if we want to find peace in the world, it can only come from the kingdom of God. We need God's help and we must live in his domain. From that feast day, the preface prayer is it's rather beautiful. I like it a lot. The church offers us the prayer. As king, he claims dominion over all creation, that he may present to you, talking to the Father, to you, an eternal kingdom. And then it describes that kingdom of truth, life, holiness, grace, justice, love, peace. That's awesome. In the, in the opening prayer, we, we call it the collect nowadays because it collects all of our prayers into one. There's this flow of Please, God, gather your people. Reign over your people. And then through that reign, let it be for the freedom of people to serve and praise you. So if our purpose is to praise and serve God, please, Lord, gather your people, rule over them, and then allow them to serve and praise you. So that's kind of cool. Um, what does this mean for the average Joe, your, uh, the average lay Joe and Jane? Well, Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it here. I'm going to pull up this document, Christofideli Lychis. I'm going to go to paragraph 14. And I've been using this already, this, this document, in a different, number of different ways here. So we talk about what it means to be a priest, prophet, and to share in Christ's kingship means something special. And so it begins... Because the lay faithful belong to Christ, Lord and King of the universe, they share in his kingly mission and are called by him to spread that kingdom in history. They exercise their kingship as Christians above all, this is pretty awesome, above all in spiritual combat in which they seek to overcome in themselves the kingdom of sin 
And then to make a gift of themselves so as to serve in justice and charity, Jesus, who in himself present in all his brothers and sisters, above all in in the very least. So that's to say, first off, you got to recognize that you were born into the world and Jesus was not your king. All right? Satan was your king, the prince of the world. You're born in original sin. There's no way around it. He's got claim over you. And your job as a king, baptized by Christ, is to establish yourself in the kingship of Christ, to not go back to the kingdom of sin, kingdom of Satan, kingdom of death. Don't do that. Don't be that guy. Please do not. And then, notice it says, and then, you know, if you're not doing this, you're not ready to make a gift of yourself to serve. And that's the next thing that it says. And then, to make a gift of themselves, so as to serve Jesus, who's present in his brothers and sisters, above all in the very least. So he says, okay, you know, this is the next part about being a king, to serve Jesus. By the way, Jesus, when you do this to the little ones, you're doing it to Jesus. So then you work for the kingdom of God to be built up specifically among God's little ones. God's little ones. All right, very good. It continues a little bit. And John Paul II says, but in particular, so he's saying, hey, this is kind of for everyone, but there's a special job for the lay people that the priests don't share in. You know, I, I must also let King let Jesus be my king over my heart, my life, and not let the kingship of, of sin and Satan come back. So I share that with everyone. But the lay have a special different emphasis. But in particular, he says, the lay faithful are called to restore to creation all its original value in ordering creation to the authentic well-being of humanity and act in an activity governed by the law, life of grace, they share the exercise of the power with which the risen Christ draws all things to himself and subjects them along with himself to the Father so that God might be everything to everyone. So here he's kind of saying, hey, look, the world's kind of a mess. It's kind of a disorder. You know, sin's caused a lot of havoc in the world, in individuals' lives, in community lives, families, and also in nature. In nature, there's violence. And the lay faithful have the duty to get into the families, into nature, into the reality, and order it towards God. If you got a business, you order your business to God. You're not trying to make a profit for yourself. If you do that, that's that's choosing a goal that is outside of God's plan, maybe. you know. If you're getting a profit, that profit ought to be in the hands of God. <laughs> that's how it goes. If you're and you can't go against God's plan to fulfill God's plan. You know, if you can make more money and build a bigger, more beautiful church where you're at, but if you have to lie to do it, that's not serving God's kingdom. No, you're just you're making a mockery of of a true spiritual goal. If you are a teacher, your goal is to build the kingdom of God among your students, to order them towards God by making them aware of what is good, true, and beautiful. If you are a policeman, your job is to bring order to society by bringing by bringing evildoers to justice and being an advocate to victims. If you are in the home, your job is to make that home ordered towards God. 
so that the meals are ordered towards God, that the decorations of the home are ordered towards God, that the activities are ordered towards God. You know, you don't have the right to, to say, hey, we're going to do all these activities with my kids at the expense of God. No, you don't have the right to ruin the kingdom of God just so your kids can have a cool, awesome opportunity. That, that's No, that's not it. That's not the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of sin. Um, or if we can make a stepping stone to make that conclusion, that's the, the kingdom of whatever you want. And whatever you want is the sin of pride. Unless what you want is God, then it's the kingdom of God. So if it's the kingdom of pride, it's the kingdom of sin. If it's the kingdom of sin, it's the kingdom of Satan. Don't be that guy. Don't be that gal. <laughs> okay, let's just give our lives to Jesus. Please, Lord. And we'll conclude with this here. If this has been helpful for you, please leave a positive review. Share it with a friend. I love these Emmaus teachings. I think they're, they're important. I think they're really essential in a lot of ways to see how all these things are connected. Our prayer life, the life of Jesus, the Old Testament, New Testament, uh, the liturgy, the... Our, our our daily life share with a friend uh, pray for me who continue to who continues to give these teachings lord knows i could use it uh, pray for the other listeners and um, may lord almighty king jesus himself bless you father son holy spirit amen toodaloo my friends adios bye